1983, Larry Walters, an ordinary truck driver living with his fiancée of 15 years in California, tied several dozen helium balloons to his lawn chair and water jugs for ballast and took to the air, fulfilling a lifelong goal and ambition and purpose to fly. Taking along a CB radio, a sandwich, a Coke, a pellet gun, and a parachute in case of emergency, he quickly exceeded his anticipated altitude of 30 feet and soared into commercial airspace at 16,000 feet. Unprepared for the cold at that altitude, Larry started to become numb. He also became fearful, fearing that if he used his pellet gun to pop a balloon, it might shift the balance of his chair and cause him to become tangled and to crash. He called for help on his CB, but there was nothing that anyone could do except warn planes that might be entering into his airspace. Eventually, without much uh, alternative, he shot one of the balloons and found his chair to be stable. So he shot a few more before he dropped his pellet gun. Fortunately, he was able to uh, pop enough balloons to affect his descent. But uh, unlucky Larry found himself picking up speed on the way down. Mercifully, he didn't splatter on the ground, but crashed into high voltage power lines that luckily for Larry had been turned off. After a few days in the hospital and a $4,000 fine, Larry left the hospital a new man. His life heading in a new and greater direction. Capitalizing on his newfound fame, Larry appeared on talk shows like David Letterman. Confident in his newfound success, he quit his job as a truck driver and became a motivational speaker just what we need. Unfortunately, over time, like his balloon adventure, Larry's fame began to descend. As the winds of celebrity shifted, Larry found it increasingly difficult to find work. And his fortunes began to pick up speed on the way down, just as they had risen him 10 years early, earlier. After his flight, where everything crashed, his newfound hope, like his journey, uh, also crashed. Without a job, his fiancée left him. Broken and in despair, in 1993, Larry Walters hiked deep into a forest and took his own life. It's a tragic end to a comical story that only you can believe because you're human and people do that kind of stuff. Um, but life for us in many ways is like a journey on a hot air balloon. We hope to get from point A to point, D, point B and the takeoff is relatively easy and certain but the part that is most important, where you're headed, 
and how you'll land is not. Hot air balloons are very effective at point A, but point B could turn into point X. It's uncertain and often tragic. Since the first human beings lifted off in a hot air balloon in 1780, air travel has changed dramatically, but people haven't. As Peter Forsyth writes in Director of Souls, if within us we have nothing over us, we succumb to what is around us. I'll read that again. If within us we have nothing over us, we succumb to what is around us. Left on our own, we lift off in a particular climate of opinion and are carried up and down on the winds of change in uncertain directions by the opinions of the age. I don't think in my life it's ever been more palpable than it is right now in the media to see the winds of popular opinion shifting and changing with such uncertainty. What was true in the past is still true today, from the Middle Ages to the Protestant Reformation, the Enlightenment to the age of Romanticism, to the age of technology. Civilization is marked by dramatic periods of global climate change of opinions. The age of Romanticism took flight along with the first hot air balloon. Europe and America were infused literally, figuratively, and spiritually in balloonomania. Women began wearing jewelry shaped like balloons and wearing hairstyles that looked like balloons. The fashions of the day started taking on the appearance of hot air balloons with bold striped silks and puffy sleeves. Even the romantic rebellion against the strictures of moral reasoning in the Enlightenment philosophy and art and poetry was turning from reasonable virtues of liberty, equality, and brotherhood to the emotional realms of feelings and love and beauty. It's like going from the Myers-Briggs ESTJ to the INFP. Um, people were enraptured with ballooning. Wordsworth, who Joel quoted last week, and Shelley and Keats and Coleridge and Dickens and Jules Verne all became obsessed with balloonomania and wrote poems and stories about it. Today's climate of opinion is carrying the world to new and uncertain places. What should we do about it? How do we live as Christians in the global climate change of modern-day balloonomania? Well, Paul gives us a great answer in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 10, which I must confess of all of Scripture is the one that probably had the most significant impact on me in coming to faith when I was in college. In it, Paul does three things. They all have to do with one thing, remembering. Remembering the hardest part of living as a Christian is keeping in the front what's behind. <laughs> remembering who 
you were. You know, starting to look into the well and then go deeper into your necessity for Christ that existed before you knew him. And secondly, remembering what God has done. It's about discovering the majesty of God in the midst of the mundane and the uncertain of the world as we're being pushed and pulled around by the climate of opinion around us. Remembering what's above. And finally, Paul wants to remind us what is ahead. So quickly, remember who you are. Remember what God's done and remember what's ahead. We were all once like Larry, but not anymore. So how we live in the Christian, as a Christian in the present day has everything to do with remembering the past. For context, Paul is writing from prison in Rome, where he will soon be put to death by the emperor Nero. Quick side note, Napoleon Bonaparte wanted to have a balloon for his, uh, his enthronement as the emperor in, 19, in 1804. So he had a 100-foot balloon uh, constructed. It was an unmanned flight. had a big gold crown attached to the bottom. It lifted off from Paris. It flew way up in the air and drifted southward across Italy to Rome, of all places. It descended as it entered into, into Rome, crossed the Vatican, and continued to decline until it crashed its crown snagging on the tomb in a graveyard and breaking free from the balloon and coming to rest on the tomb of, of all people, Nero. <laughs> he fired the, the person who made the balloon and didn't use a balloon again for the next 60 years as a result. Sorry, a little bit of diversion. But, but, uh, but for Paul, they're in a serious time He's in Rome facing death, and he's writing to Ephesus, which is a place that you'll remember from chapter uh, 19 of Acts. Paul had laid hands on 12 disciples, and they received the Holy Spirit. And after that, there were two years of the gospel flourishing throughout all of Asia. It was in Ephesus that a spirit, an evil spirit, leapt from a possessed man and beat up the seven sons of Sceva, uh, who were the sons of a Jewish priest, making them run naked and wounded away because the sons of Sceva were trying to evoke the name of Jesus without knowing Jesus. Um, I won't do that again. Um, so in Ephesus is where the pagan, it was a pagan city of quite a, quite a bit of renown. It's where the temple to Artemis was. Uh, also uh, known as Diana, it's, she was the goddess of fertility and war. It was a place notorious for cult prostitution and, and really debauchery and sin of unparalleled uh, uh, measure in, in all of the, that part of Europe and Asia at the time. Paul started a riot there because he convinced the people to stop worshiping Artemis, which caused a problem for a silversmith named Demetrius, who was earning a living selling little silver figurines of Artemis. The chant went up, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, and, and there was a riot. 
So this is not a place where the climate of opinion surrounding believers in Ephesus was a real comfortable place to be. It was a place that had a certain pull on the Ephesians, a pull back into what had been. So Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we have once all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. You were dead. You were dead. A walking corpse, spiritually incapable of life, unable to change anything about your current state unable to produce anything of worth. You know, by now most of you have probably experienced some level of death in your life, whether it be a, a family member or a pet, or even the death of, of an idea. Something that can't be resurrected, it can't be changed, it can't be resuscitated. It doesn't matter what you do. That is the condition of our soul apart from Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, many of you may have been, you know, saying the Lord's Prayer your whole life and wondering what in the world is a trespass? Um, as a fisherman, I know what trespasses are because I see no trespassing signs just about everywhere I go. Um, trespassing is unlawfully crossing a boundary, going where you shouldn't go, going too far, breaking the law. Similarly, sin is another term, which is an archery term. It means missing the mark. It's like you take aim and you shoot and you don't hit the bullseye. You hit somewhere else. You're off target. You're falling short. You're not reaching the goal. So we've either crossed into places where we shouldn't have gone, or we haven't reached the places that we should. And the reason is, because we all once walked this way, following the course of the world and following the prince of the power of the air. So you might wonder why in the world I was talking about balloons as much as I was. And part of it has to do with the fact that we follow the power of the prince of the air. This is an unusual reference in all of scripture. You don't find a whole lot to describe Satan that has to do with being the prince of the power of the air. Nowhere else. As I thought about it, though, it stood out to me as the most significant thing relative to the world in which we live. We go in the direction the world is going. We go the direction that Satan is pushing us. As the prince of the power of the air, it's like there's a scale force wind behind us driving us in, in a particular direction that's hard, if not impossible, to resist. This is the power that's at work in the climate of opinion in the present post-Christian age, blowing those who are dead in their rebellion and disobedience away from the love of God and toward wrath. It's the way we once were, cut off from relationship with God, cut off from the temple in Jerusalem, cut off from the justice and the atoning sacrifice 
that's provided. We were children of wrath, lawbreakers. This is a very hard thing for people to get their minds around until they read more in Paul. You know, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. When we were enemies, he died for us. Don't be deceived, however. Paul is not trying to distinguish between being a Christian and being a non-Christian over the problem of passions of the flesh or desires of the body and mind. Paul's pointing out the similarity. We were. He uses we. He includes himself. He's not setting himself apart somehow as something different. We were. But our problem is, is that we live in the world and we forget. Don't be caught up. Don't be carried away like Larry by the winds floating around in the air. It is not the virtuous idealism that mirrors Christian virtues that's the problem. The problem is that you are living among people who are still dead. But you're not dead. You just can't remember that you're alive. When you look out ahead and you become discouraged and uncertain and angry and bewildered about the world around, it's not because of the world around you, it's because what's in you. That's the problem. It's the power of the prince of the air that is at work. So the second thing is that we need to remember what God has done. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We don't like a God who loves us. <laughs> we do not like amazing grace. We do not like grace. We want a God who owes us. So we create a measuring stick. We set it at a level that we can accomplish. We do what we think we're supposed to do and we put God in the dock and we hold him responsible for his bad judgments, not being fair. You know, I know the, the women in church are reading through Joshua right now. It's a tough book of death and destruction. Um, and people want to say there's a different God in the Old Testament, a different, different God in the New. There's not. We all deserve the wrath of God because we all trespass. We all sin. There's no escape. There's no escape because we're dead. The passage that I read from, uh, from Second Chronicles is about the Babylonian exile. God's own chosen people. He breaks relationship with them. He allows the Babylonians to come and take them away. To take away all the property, all the, the worship items from uh, you know, the altar. And to take them into Babylon and melt them down. And he takes the people away and puts them into slavery, and very few remain 70 years later. But then God, using another foreign king, overthrows the Babylonians. And he works in the heart of that king. 
And that king puts out a decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Why would a Persian king who doesn't believe in the God of the Israelites do such a thing? Because we have a magnificent God who does what he wants to do and he delivers on his promises. He cares and loves for, loves his, cares for and loves his people. And his desire is their restoration. So after the purification of death and suffering, they're restored. They're not restored because of the imperfect sacrifice of bulls and lambs, but because of the perfect and fully sufficient sacrifice of Jesus, who has made it possible for us to re-enter the, the temple, to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God and stand there unafraid because we're in Christ. God has given us reason, it says, to boast. It says, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That's not that we have no boasting. What it means is that we can boast in some things that we can claim as our own. We can boast in our trespasses. We can boast in our sin. We can boast in our filthy rags. We can boast in the wages of sin. We can get credit for the stench of death and the grave that comes from who we are, who we were. Our reason for boasting. If we boast, we boast in the Lord. Our reason for boasting is the free gift that we've received. We boast in his righteousness. We boast in his majesty. We boast in his sacrifice and his love, his blood. We boast in the resurrection, apart from which we're just floating around like people on a balloon going with the wind. We have no sure hope. We have just the false promise of the wind. You know, we could spend days and days and days, and I know you're probably anxious for me to finish, but we could spend days and days and days right here. Because what happens in Christ, we have God who does this for nothing that we've done, only because he loves us. And only by his grace he gives us this free gift. We want to look at all the things, how good we are, compare ourselves to everybody around us, and reach some different conclusion. But the gospel brings us back to the truth that you bring nothing to your own salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. God, by his love for us in Christ, has brought us to life. We were dead. The most important words in the Bible, perhaps, are, but God. <laughs> but God brought us to life. He saved us. He gave us new life. So verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This should probably be uh, tattooed, if you get a tattoo somewhere on your body. Um, it should be on your mirror as you look in the mirror in the morning. It should be in your prayers. It should be in your heart. To remember 
that our salvation is not from our works. It's from His work. We are His workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus. We've been born again. And you, you know, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, so <laughs> we didn't say that very much. Um, <laughs> you know, we're born again. It's, an, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing. It's what we celebrate every single day of our life. We're created in Christ Jesus because we're died with Him. We're buried with Him and we rose with Him. The resurrection is the indisputable fact of Christianity. It is the most important thing. If you're sitting here this morning and you're doubtful about the resurrection, you need to spend some time in Scripture. You need to spend some time talking to people. If you feel drawn to Christianity, but that's not there for you, you can't have anything of the benefits of Christ, the riches that God is going to pour out on us, without the resurrection. It's why we're wearing purple. It's why we're doing Lent. It's why we're on our knees. It's why we're doing the Decalogue, so that we know how much we violate the law of God, or deserving of wrath, or dead and need new life. We are created in Christ Jesus by His work on the cross for us as a free gift of God's grace. We're born again for a purpose. Jesus' death on the cross was not some Hail Mary pass at the end of time to create a remedy for a problem that God couldn't solve otherwise. The cross and your salvation were part of the plan before you were born. It's part of the original plan. What we know in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, is you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Well, what does that mean for you as you go out and you try to live your life and achieve your purpose and are strapping balloons to your lawn chair? It means that God has a purpose for your life and that he's ready and willing and able to give you everything necessary to accomplish it because that's who he is. And we can trust him. Let me just conclude this way. Remember who you were before you were a Christian. You were like Larry Walters, floating around on the wind in danger of death, on a trajectory toward despair, hopelessness, powerless to do anything. You couldn't get anybody on the CB radio to come to your rescue. That's the way you were. As you grow as a Christian, as you understand the process of sanctification, growing more in the likeness of Christ, the converse of that, the other side of that coin, is growing a deeper and deeper understanding of your necessity. It's not leaving it behind and just moving ahead. Remember what God has done for you by virtue of his own will, his own majesty, his own character, his own love for you. And it wasn't some big blanket wash over everybody to do it exactly the same way. It's for you in particular. 
That's what we get in verse two, chapter 2, verse 10. You, every single person here, are God's workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus. You've been created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You don't have to be afraid or uncertain about the future. You don't have to be blown around by the climate of opinion because your destination is secure. You know where it is? It's at the throne of God. In Christ. You're hidden in Christ with God. You have no reason for fear. Courage. Take courage. In times like these, it's easy to be swept up by the climate of opinion, only to come crashing down yet again. Be on your guard. Do not forget who you were, what God has done, and what's ahead for you and for us in Christ. Amen.